Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. It's good to be with you. All this hour, we'll be talking about the history of slavery and systemic racism in this country in recognition of the Juneteenth holiday, a holiday which celebrates emancipation. We'll talk more about Juneteenth and its significance this year, but we begin in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm R.J. Young. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm a sports talk show host and sports writer. The year I turned 29, then-Tulsa police officer Betty Shelby killed Terrence Crutcher while he stood unarmed in the middle of the street in my hometown. This summer, I will turn 33, and George Floyd was choked to death with a knee over his throat by yet another man who brought a violent end to a black man under the guise of being a peace officer. Floyd couldn't breathe, and right now the only thing I can do is hold my breath. That audio is courtesy of KOSU in Oklahoma and part of the America Amplified Initiative. But Tulsa's racist history dates back much further than R.J. Young can remember. 99 years ago, Tulsa was the site of one of the deadliest and most destructive race massacres in U.S. history. I'm Carlos K. Hill. I'm professor and chair of the African and African American Studies Department at the University of Oklahoma. Professor Hill has researched what happened in Tulsa in 1921. He knows the timeline well. The origins of the race massacre began when Dick Rowland, an African-American youth, we believe he was approximately 18 years old, he entered the Drexel building, entered an elevator in which Sarah Page, a 17-year-old white girl uh, who was the elevator operator, and he entered the elevator, and we believe he may have stepped on her toe. We may have believed because of, you know, elevators weren't as as nice as they are today. There may have been a jostle when the elevator moved. He bumped into her. Whatever happened, it startled her, and she ran from the elevator to a nearby business and told the, the store owner what had happened. The store owner, receiving this frantic white girl, based on the story that she told him, believed that she had been assaulted. Dick Rowland, ultimately the next day, he was arrested by Tulsa police. He was held at the uh, courthouse. And as rumors of alleged assault began to spread, whites began to congregate around the jail. That night, there were perhaps hundreds of whites outside the courthouse clamoring to lynch Dick Rowland. The African-American community got wind of these threats against Dick Rowland's life. Uh, Many in the community knew Dick Rowland, knew that he was not capable of what he was being accused of. And so a small contingent, initially a small contingent of African-American men went down to the courthouse to offer assistance to uh, the police chief. World War I veterans armed and the sight of black men being armed and striding in to this sea of white people with dignity and with manhood so incited whites that many of them left uh, the courthouse, went to their home or went somewhere nearby, got a weapon and came back. The police chief told uh, the small contingent 
that he would not need their support or assistance to keep the crowd under control or to protect Dick Rowland. And so they were turned back. They came back because there was a fear that Dick Rowland's lynching was imminent. A second group returned, a larger group returned. And this time when they offered their assistance, uh, they were told no, but a white person in the crowd attempts to disarm one of the African-American men who's, who is armed. A shot is fired and the worst race massacre, or one of the worst, had begun. When it was all said and done, the Greenwood District, also known as Black Wall Street, was leveled. According to the 2001 Race Riot Commission report, as many as 300 people were killed, the majority of them black, and over 1,200 homes and businesses had been destroyed. Here's Professor Hill again. I've been working on the la- on for the last three years of photographic history of the race massacre. And when you view those photographs, it appears to be uh, Berlin or Paris during the aerial bombardment of World War II. It does not look like an American city um, and certainly not one as prosperous as, as the Greenwood District was. And so it was total destruction in Greenwood. And that occurred, by my calculation, in about 12 hours. A 35-block area was completely laid to waste. Was there ever a a sort of renaissance? Did this area ever come back? The area, um, due to the resilience of African-Americans in the Greenwood District, came back. And not only did it come back, um, it was bigger, more prosperous than it had ever been in 1921. So by 1942, um, the Greenwood District has, I believe, 240 businesses. The population of the Greenwood District has grown. It is truly the beginnings of the golden age, I could say, of the Greenwood District. I would say the 1940s and 1950s. Um, we could consider that the golden age. The 1960s and urban renewal policies sort of began to chip away at the Greenwood District. But I would say coming out of the Great Depression and the kind of renewed prosperity that was occurring in America post-World War II, Greenwood experienced an uptick as well. And so the, that sort of 20-year period from, say, 1940 to 1960 was sort of, the, I believe, the high point of the community. But none of that, that renaissance is owed to the city leadership, uh, state leadership, who did very little uh, to support the Greenwood District in the aftermath of the race massacre. Um, really what you have is the black community coming together, banding together to rebuild, and it, and it did so. And so when I, when I talk about the race massacre, one of the bright spots in a sea of horrific history is sort of the resilience of survivors um, and the refusal to, to leave the community that they, had, that they had built. As you know quite well, the city of Tulsa, and, and quite frankly, the country never paid this attention, right? You know, this was not something that people talked about. We didn't study this in history class. It seems to me that Tulsa is has been having something of a reckoning, at least in recent years. You're on the commission marking the 100-year anniversary. I was reading about the fact that they're trying to do some excavating to find where so many of these victims of this racial violence were buried. 
But tell me this, thinking about Tulsa now, 100 years later, almost 100 years later, do you think that the city leaders, political leaders, community leaders are making the link between what happened in Tulsa 100 years ago and what continues to happen today, especially around police violence? I think activists are making the link. Uh, Activists and community advocates like Tiffany Crutcher are making the link between the race massacre and what happened to her brother, Terrence Crutcher. Uh, She started, Tiffany Crutcher started the Terrence Crutcher Foundation after Terrence was killed by Betty Shelby, a Tulsa police officer under dubious circumstances. Um, Activists like her are making the link. I believe city leadership talks about um, the Tulsa race massacre, will talk about police brutality and the need to reform, but I don't see them necessarily connecting the dots between the two of them in ways that would lead me to believe that there's going to be a thoroughgoing reform reflective of the you know at least 100 years worth of racial violence and systemic abuse uh, of African Americans in the city. I would say that I hope that the centennial, the 100th anniversary, will create greater dialogue, greater understanding about the linkage, linkage between the two. Um, but I don't see a whole lot of evidence that a true understanding of the, the race massacre will lead to a kind of you know motivation amongst city leaders to have a thoroughgoing uh, transformation in how it does policing. There are activists who are trying to get an independent body to audit uh, instances in which uh, police officers discharge their weapon. Uh, it doesn't have to be a fatal shooting, but just when police officers discharge their weapon, they want an independent review board. And the police union has been fighting that and has succeeded in stymieing that effort that has come by way of activists. And so I have heard a lot of talk about needing to reckon with the history of the race massacre from city leaders, confront what happened. I've heard that talk from city leaders. But when it comes to actual policies, and particularly as it relates to the police, we haven't really seen that. 99 years after the Tulsa race massacre, I am terrified to be a black man in Tulsa. For RJ Young... The race massacre that happened in 1921 and his lived experience as an African-American man in Tulsa in 2020 feel all too connected. I've heard from black friends who have purchased guns over the weekend. They have decided this is the only way they can ensure protection because they don't feel their white friends will protect them. I am a millennial black man and this is what my normal looks like. Last Sunday, I jumped into my truck pulled onto the street and took the on-ramp to Highway 75 in Tulsa. I took the Pine exit and then took Pine to Greenwood to approach the Cultural Center from the north. I didn't participate in the Black Lives Matter protest so much as I watched others participate in it. They wore masks, they held signs. They chanted together, marched together, at a time when we're all supposed to be at home for threat of a pandemic that all of a sudden is not the most threatening disease in my life anymore. No, racism has taken back the number one spot in the power rankings. I am a black man. To see me 
is to see a tattooed black man with muscles, a head full of locks, and an affinity for skinny jeans and Space Jam 11s. Because I can't actually wear a sign on my chest that says I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm a graduate of the University of Tulsa. This is my home. I'm in pain. And I'm scared of the world. But I'm not so scared that I don't want to engage with you in meaningful ways. And I haven't lost hope in the idea of the impossible being within our grasp. The impossible is the least one can demand. I didn't write that, James Baldwin did. I just decided he was right. We're revisiting this history because President Trump chose Tulsa as the site for his first in-person rally since the COVID-19 pandemic brought a halt to traditional campaigning. It's difficult not to question Trump's location choice for this rally, particularly on Juneteenth weekend, as people across the country celebrate emancipation. I asked Professor Hill if he suspects President Trump's presence in Tulsa will further inflame the divisions around the issues of race and racism. We all know that uh, President Trump um, is polarizing. And we know that, you know, in the last three weeks, he's been making statements about law and order that has frustrated um, uh, community leaders, activists, and just people who want to see police reform. Um, the law and order message just seems tone deaf, and, you know, just unsympathetic to, you know, what has happened. And, you know, in the last three weeks, President Trump has not signaled truly his deep sadness, disappointment with what occurred. Um, he's only really focused on the quote unquote violence um, in the streets and, and wanting to impo- wanting to dominate the streets and wanting to make sure that police are, um, you know, in control of these rallies. And so that's just been the wrong message. If he comes to Tulsa and has that same message, it is going to inflame the situation. You know, even with the president's history of wading into these really complex issues uh, in ways that are not effective or productive, he still has an opportunity uh, to try to tamp down the kind of, you know, real tension and bring it from from a boil to a simmer by the things that he says. Um, I've said on uh, in other places that it could be a nice gesture if the president visited the Greenwood District, took a tour of Black Wall Street or what was Black Wall Street, meet with community leaders, talk to community leaders about their plans for um, the 100th anniversary, their plans for economic development in the area. Um, Those things, while symbolic, would help to tamp down the real um, inflammatory rhetoric and the tension in this country. Um, Ultimately, what we need is you know, thoroughgoing transformation in terms of how policing is done. But in this moment, I think emotions are high, feelings are raw, and he can do something to help uh, tamp it down. Will he do it? You know, I, I, I have some big doubts, but he does have an opportunity. And, and, and it would be nice in this, you know, moment, particularly in relationship to Juneteenth, that, that he, out of respect for the holiday, he would do that. Finally, I want you to reflect a little bit on on Juneteenth and what it means to you and especially what it means to you in this moment 
we are sitting in? I think we're going to witness a Juneteenth like no other. Juneteenth typically brings together African-Americans to think about and reflect on where we've been, where we are right now, and where we want to go. And, you know, it's typically small gatherings at churches, community centers. This year, it most certainly, Juneteenth will be celebrations, commemorations where white Americans are in attendance. Instead of small gatherings, it'll likely be in the form of rallies and marches uh, in honor of George Floyd. Instead of just thinking about and reflecting on where we've been, it'll be real discussions about what we need to do right now uh, to end or to eradicate or make negligible police violence against black bodies. There is real societal interest in Juneteenth and using it to mark um, this moment in, in America. And I think it's important in part because, not just because of the moment, but as a country, um, we have we have yet to really um, reconcile ourselves, reckon with the history of slavery in this country. So many people see Juneteenth as an African-American holiday or an African-American celebration. It ought to be an American celebration. White people ought to be as enthusiastic and excited about this holiday as black people for the very reason that slavery was a national institution. Um, and slavery was something that, you know, that was enshrined in, in American law. And so if we could get to a place where in this country, Juneteenth is not just a state holiday or a black holiday, but it's a national holiday, then I think we would be moving in the right direction. In it becoming a national holiday, we would have to do the reckoning. We would have to have those hard conversations about the ways in which America right now, we are still living through the era of slavery. The slavery, the, the era of slavery has not passed. We're still enmeshed in it. But most Americans aren't really conscious of the ways in which slavery is still playing a role in their day to day life. And when I see the footage of George Floyd being killed um, by the Minneapolis officer, I see the history of slavery. Right. The history of slavery was about dominating black bodies um, and specifically dominating black bodies for profit's sake. We think that because slavery ended, the desire to dominate black bodies went away. It evaporated into thin air. No, it it persisted. And we saw it in the history of lynching and racial violence in this country that white men had to dominate. Right. And control black bodies through violence that continues in the form of lynching. I believe we see traces of that right in the George Floyd murder. But most people would not make that connection. And so. If, if we had real thoroughgoing conversations about the history of slavery, not just as an economic institution, but a violent institution that was about dominating black bodies, we could get so far in this country around thinking about police brutality and then just private violence, vigilante violence in the form of Ahmaud Aubrey. We could get so far. But until we have that reckoning, we'll, we'll still see these histories as disparate and unconnected. Professor Hill, I really appreciate you coming and taking the time to talk with me about all this. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, Amy. Special thanks to KOSU's Kate Lee Mills 
and Matthew Viriapa for the audio you heard of R.J. Young at the very top of the show today. R.J.'s audio diary is part of the America Amplified initiative. America Amplified is a national public media collaboration focused on community engagement reporting. This year, Juneteenth falls in the midst of a national reckoning about the role racism has played and continues to play in American institutions. So we asked you, when and how did you learn about Juneteenth? Hi, this is Joy calling from Cambridge. As a Black woman, I'm completely gobsmacked that we're talking about Juneteenth. I celebrated Juneteenth as a child. My families took me to community festivals. Those festivals included the Black National Anthem, songs that slaves sing in order to know and how and when to escape, references to traditions at historically Black colleges, which included step shows and fashion shows. This was a part of my childhood. I hope to have it a part of my child's childhood. And it's amazing that America's interested. I'm blown away. This is Heather Stuyvesant. I'm calling from Dartmouth, Massachusetts. And I first learned about Juneteenth in 2008 when my husband was a pastor, a new pastor, at a black church in East Orange, New Jersey. My husband and I are both white, and we didn't know about the celebration. We were shocked to learn that it had taken two and a half years for news of the Emancipation Proclamation to reach Galveston, Texas. We've celebrated Juneteenth in some way ever since, each year learning more and more about what it means to be allies for the cause. Hello, name's Emmerich from St. Louis, Missouri. I learned about Juneteenth actually by watching a show called Blackish. Uh, I had heard of Juneteenth, but I had never studied or looked it up, and no one that I knew celebrated it. But again, the show Blackish illuminated it for me. Hello, this is Nan calling from Seattle. About two years ago, I took a class on the civil rights movement, and that was the first time I had ever heard of Juneteenth. This is Barry Wynn calling from Brighton, Michigan. And to answer your question about celebrating emancipation, I don't know when I first learned about it. I think I was a kid. I'm 58 now. But the realization that it should be a national holiday because it really is the true founding of our republic and not the 4th of July only hit me recently. I'm never going to work on June 19th again. This is Reem calling from Ridgewood, New Jersey, and I'm deeply ashamed to admit it, but the first time I heard of Juneteenth was a couple of years ago. I was checking my phone, and on the Google Calendar, uh, it had labeled Juneteenth as a holiday, and I had no idea what it was until I Googled it. Hi, this is Monica from Lebanon, Oregon. I'm ashamed to say that except for maybe hearing about it in passing, I did not know about Juneteenth until this last week when there was controversy about the president having a rally in Tulsa on that date. Makes me sad that it took me until I was 32 years old. And it's definitely something that I plan on making a part of my family culture. Louise Bell from Pasadena, California. I will be 65 in July. I am a, quote, since 1619 African-American, end quote, female. I grew up in Chicago. I clearly remember watching on the then new technology television, the modern day civil rights movement in the USA. Always loved school, reading and learning. I was perhaps in my 30s before learning about Juneteenth via my helping my two older children learn about our African-American history. 
in the USA. We always love hearing from you. The number to call, 877-8-MY-TAKE. And thanks, as always, for sharing your stories. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost a month since George Floyd was brutally killed by police officers in Minneapolis. We are in a time of a national reckoning about the role structural racism has played in policing and criminal justice policy. This has put mayors, police chiefs, and local law enforcement in the spotlight. So I decided to check in on a couple of chief prosecutors who were elected on a platform of progressive criminal justice reform. I wanted to find out how they are navigating this moment. I think there's no question the country was already headed in the direction of reform. I was by no means the first progressive prosecutor elected. Larry Krasner is the district attorney of Philadelphia. A former defense attorney, Krasner was elected in 2017 on a platform that included eliminating cash bail, addressing police misconduct, and ending mass incarceration. That the seeds of mass incarcerations and this, this type of criminal justice approaches destruction were uh, sown a long time ago. You know, the impact of mass incarceration, the impact of this, uh, uh, this carceral approach to criminal justice has affected so many individuals and so many of their relatives and friends and communities that the, its crushing weight was already known. And that is coming at the same time as these other layers of extreme social distress, economic distress related to the pandemic, fear relating to health, isolation, the capacity for people to actually come to the streets despite their fear because they're unemployed. I also spoke this week with Kimberly Gardner, who's the circuit attorney in St. Louis, Missouri. She's faced a number of challenges trying to reform the city's criminal justice system and has gone toe to toe with the city's police union. We're having similar protests. Um, as you know, we're the ground zero in Ferguson yeah. with the attention of police violence, dealing with um, the unfortunate death of Mr. Mike Brown. So we're having these protests of the killing of Mr. George Floyd and the carelessness and the uncaring manner in which individuals die at the hands of, of law enforcement. And I want to talk about you and the job you have in front of you right now, even before this moment that we're in, you and city officials and the police union have had not a fantastic relationship. It's a little bit rocky. You filed a lawsuit earlier this year accusing the city and the police union of coordinated and racist conspiracy aimed at forcing you out of office. So I want to talk to you about how this has impacted your ability to do your job at this moment, and then even thinking about the kinds of reforms that you want to put forward, how is this relationship uh, impacting that? Well, I think that um, 
the bigger question is, you know, police accountability. That's what the protests of Mr. George Floyd and other protests that we had across this this country and particularly in St. Louis is key to the prosecutor in any jurisdiction doing their job. And when you have this unchecked balance by a small few of police officers who are allowed to commit these everyday slights of injustice in communities that need police the most, that led to the eight minutes and 46 seconds of, of the death of Mr. George Floyd. And people are saying enough is enough. And when you are a reform-minded prosecutor like myself who has decided that it is too late when we are protesting, we have to implement a police accountability before, like um, in my jurisdiction, we have an exclusion list, which particularly relates to um, we are not entertaining any charges of any officers who are currently under investigation, who have issues with credibility, who are not truthful, and we are not allowing them to bring a charge to our office or to testify in cases. And those are some of the accountability measures that prosecutors in every jurisdiction should make sure it's implemented as well as charging police. That's where um, the reform efforts of reform-minded prosecutors are crucial. And we hear criticism when you are a prosecutor, when you hold police accountable, because then it is the police union who starts to attack that office and to and, and to condone um, the blue wall of silence, which makes it difficult even when you charge police with a crime. Well, and we're seeing in a place like Atlanta, for example, after the Fulton County District Attorney announced felony murder charges against the Atlanta police officer who fatally shot Rayshard Brooks, a number of police officers in the city called in sick just before a shift change on Wednesday. We had heard about similar uh, behavior in Buffalo after police officers were uh, taken off the job after a video surfaced of them pushing down an older man. Talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, are we getting to a place where we're going to see in these cities as as prosecutors really push for more accountability by the police that the police are are going to push back and say, you don't appreciate us and our sacrifices and there are going to be sick outs and other sorts of uh, confrontations like this? Well, we're seeing a shift that now people are, are really seeing what are the challenges when you have to hold police accountable like everybody else. And in these examples, in this uh, public forum now, we're seeing the, the, the problem with that. When you are um, have a duty to protect and serve and to uphold the laws of whatever your jurisdiction is, then you have to actually be professionals and do your job. Your public or personal bias of a certain type of situation or case should not prevent you from doing your job. And there are many fine men and women who do their job every day without fanfare. But it's time for elected officials like mayors around these countries who negotiate their collective bargaining agreements with these police unions to stop this behavior and saying it's zero tolerance for behavior, what they call the blue flu, which they're allowed to do um, unchecked and without any repercussions. And it's time for us to put the justice at the forefront of police accountability. And we believe that right now we're in a time where this is having national attention and the spotlight is on for, you know, for change. And that's where, where the protesters are asking for accountability and transparency. And it's time for the elected officials to implement those uh, 
transparency procedures, as well as um, showing the public how these collecting bargaining agreements make it difficult for even well-intentioned police chiefs to take out some of the bad apples to stop some of this behavior. And no longer can police police themselves. And we have to have independent investigative bureaus led by um, the prosecutor's office who review certain acts for criminal charges and make it easier for us to do our job, along with other transparent, um, open procedures that protect not only that police officer who may or may not be charged, but the public and the integrity of justice of the whole criminal justice system. It seems as if St. Louis, the the city council itself, or at least the city panel itself, is actually moving forward on some sorts of reforms. I'm just reading today's um, post-dispatch that said that a city panel on Wednesday voted to cut spending on the city's controversial medium security jail to free up that money to hire mental health and social workers to aid police. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing happen in St. Louis at this moment and whether you think that is going far enough. Well, like I said, until we have um, those, those things like, you know, redirecting some of the resources to support the root causes of what drives individuals to the criminal justice system. I believe in social workers being out there in the community to heal the cycle of victimization that we all know is prevalent. And that, that is um, a a key factor in um, building trust with the whole criminal justice ecosystem. But at the same time, we have to focus on these everyday slights of injustice that many in the community who need police the most particularly dealing with black and brown communities where the high concentration of crime and policing is is enacted. These everyday slights make it difficult for well-intentioned prosecutors to hold individuals who commit the most heinous acts in, in these communities accountable because of the fear of coming forward. When you see those same officers who display acts of, of, of violence against certain groups of people, now they ask you to come forward and tell them what happened. And so that's what we're talking about. It's not just law enforcement. It's the whole criminal justice ecosystem that we have to build trust with. And how we do that is we have to put at the forefront in light of real reforms, reforming the union and their power, how the union is able to be unchecked, particularly in St. Louis um, region, where we have Jeff Rorta, the business manager, who is a rogue, um, racially divisive cop who has been on the national forefront of speaking on um, how to protect some of the bad actors on police departments and protect their behavior and to support that behavior. Our police union is one of the rare police unions that has not come out and spoke on the, the senseless and uncaring death of Mr. George Floyd. But this behavior is allowed to be unchecked and to be hidden in these backroom negotiations of their collecting bargaining agreements. So we have to put the police union in their place and in line with every other organization that that bargains for the individual rights of officers and their employer-employee relationship. But right now, around these countries, these police unions are unchecked and they're out of balance with everyone else. The police union causes the divisiveness and divide in communities where they're able to take off. They're able to not do their job. And no one is going to do anything about that. And so we have to give people tools to put them in check. And and it's truly about justice. And until people in the community see that a police officer is treated the same way as everyday citizen when they commit a crime, we're going to continue to have these issues of, and protests. 
And unfortunately, we're going to continue to have the pain that we're seeing displayed for families losing their loved ones to police violence or any violence. And people Mm -hmm. are, are tired of this. So what do you think about these calls to defund the police? I think these calls to defund the police, you know, are a conversation that is not as simple as people think. You know, I, I believe that it's about redivesting some of the over um, funding of certain police departments to, like I said before, and I know the city of St. Louis is looking into that, redivesting it into social services, which I, I think is appropriate. But we also have to look at how do we really fund the disparities that in communities who have significant wage disparities in the city of St. Louis, where we have lack of access coverage in our state. We need to have a national plan and a unified plan of how we support the very services that are needed to heal communities all over the United States and to really look at the wage disparities, the the healthcare disparities, the divide in how we deliver services to people who need it the most. And I think that's where the conversation needs to not just be on defunding law enforcement. Well, let's redirect it, but have a strategic plan of how are we going to close the gap of the inequities that we all know are perpetuated by these broken systems. Kimberly Gardner, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Appreciate you and thank you for having me. In the week since George Floyd was killed by police officers in Minneapolis, we've been watching uprisings take place against police brutality. What many Americans have finally woken up to is what black Americans have known for years. It's impossible to decouple police brutality from the racism that's baked into the structure of many American institutions, including the economy. Today, black households have one-tenth of the wealth compared to white families and are much less likely to own their homes. We also know that African Americans are being hit disproportionately harder by coronavirus in addition to the economic uncertainty caused by the virus. Black Americans are concentrated in parts of the economy that have been designated as essential, like grocery stores and transit operators. Still, black unemployment almost tripled from February to May to almost 17%. Historically, recovering from recessions has been tougher for African Americans. Now, as states have started reopening and more people have started going back to work, I wanted to take a look at how the economy has shifted for black Americans and what a recovery might look like. Joining me to discuss her reporting on the subject is Amara Amokwe, an economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Right. And so we talked to a lot of workers who said that they had started to benefit from some of these dynamics in the labor market that we were talking about. People um, who had gotten jobs, had seen their wages increase, and then the pandemic hit and it was like the rug was pulled out from under them. I talked to a woman who lives in a suburb of Dallas. In 2017, she had found a job in the accounting department of a hotel company and was really excited about it. Prior to getting this job, she had been sort of doing a lot of temp work, bouncing around from job to job, and she just felt really unstable. So when she got this job in 2017, she was excited about the prospects of stability, excited about the prospects of perhaps even moving up in the company. And then the pandemic hit. And of course, the hotel industry was one of the hardest hit industries. So she was first furloughed and she thought, okay, I'm furloughed. Hopefully the job will call me back at some point. And then she later found out that she had been laid off. And so now she's staring down 
another period of uncertainty. She doesn't know what she's going to do. She had a longstanding health issue that she was hoping to address through insurance at her job. She no longer has insurance. So it has just completely sort of turned her world upside down is what she said. And she didn't have a lot of savings. So she doesn't really have a big safety net. And that's what I wanted to talk about, too, was uh, we know, for example, that for large stretches of this pandemic, black and white employment losses were basically the same. And then I was just looking through a report the other day in the New York Times that found that layoffs among African-Americans have grown recently, these last couple of months, while white employment has risen slightly. So it seems as if even as the economy may be getting better, it's still not getting better for African-American workers. What's going on here? Well, a couple of things are happening. So African-Americans kind of had a double-edged sword. They are more likely to work in some of the hardest hit industries and in industries that work is not easily moved to sort of work from home. And so African-Americans were either sort of forced to keep working because they were sort of essential frontline workers in some of these industries, or they were less likely to be able to work from home. So they they were more likely to be laid off. Another thing that we saw in last month's labor market report was that the unemployment rate for African-Americans actually ticked up. So more people are obviously starting to look for work, but it seems like fewer African-Americans are actually able to find work. So the other challenge here, as we've we've sort of talked about a little bit, but there's like this triple whammy, right? We know that African-Americans disproportionately are getting impacted by the virus itself. We know that they may be less likely to have health care already and that they're in jobs that are not easily work from home jobs and those jobs may not be coming back. So what does this tell us then about what a recovery could look like? So we we talked to one economist who was basically saying the job losses due to the pandemic were across the board, across racial groups, but it's already looking like the recovery will not be that equal, will not be that sort of evenly dispersed. And if you look at the Great Recession and how the recovery happened after that, African-Americans did lag. As I mentioned, you know, it wasn't sort of until latter parts of the expansion that we really started to see African-Americans make gains. And at many points during the last expansion, the African-American unemployment rate was still double the white unemployment rate. So if history is any indication, or if the last recession is any indication, some economists fear that African-Americans will lag as we start to come out of the pandemic. The other thing is that African-Americans tend to have less of the things that sort of provide a a cushion in an economic downturn. So for instance, the African-American homeownership rate is much lower than the white homeownership rate. So if you think about perhaps a family tapping the wealth that they have tied up in a home to help survive an economic downturn, African-Americans are not able to do that as readily. So we've seen Congress try to address just writ large the challenges, the economic challenges of the coronavirus with things like PPP loans, and then these one-time payments. How much has this helped African-Americans in particular? And do we think that that is enough? Well, I can speak to what has been one of the biggest efforts by lawmakers to 
support the economy, which is the Paycheck Protection Program. And that is a program that is offering forgivable loans to small businesses. And there was a lot of concern as this program was rolled out that African-American business owners were not going to be able to access that program because you have to go through a financial institution to get the loans. And we know from research that Black business owners are less likely to have an established relationship with a bank. And so there were a lot of concerns that Black business owners maybe wouldn't be able to get the loan money. I think Congress and the Trump administration have been working to implement measures to address that concern, but there's no way of really knowing at this point whether they have. They ha- they aren't tracking demographic information, for instance, so we don't know how um, how well this massive loan program is reaching the African-American community and other, and other underserved communities. Right. So folks like you who are trying to research this, you just, there's, n- there's no easy way to know where this money has gone, uh, right? Is that what essentially what you're saying? Absolutely. There's no easy way to track where it's going along racial and gender lines. And there's also, the Trump administration has also been signaling that it's resistant to even disclosing who the borrowers are. Um, so it's, there's also no way of knowing if the smallest and the neediest businesses are the ones taking the loans, or if it's some of these bigger companies. And the program had had been criticized because of bigger companies participating in the program. Amara Amokwe is an economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Here's something else I've been looking at this week. President Trump is at the most precarious political moment of his presidency. His job approval rating sits at a dismal 41%. National polling shows him losing to Joe Biden by an average of nine points. Even states once considered layups for Trump, like Ohio and Iowa, find the president struggling against Joe Biden. The big question today is if Trump can improve his standing before November. Given the fact that the president has shown no real interest in meeting this moment of unrest and anxiety with anything other than his typical behavior and approach, it's not likely that he has the ability to change perceptions of how he's handling his job. To recover, Trump needs the circumstances to change, since he won't change. Instead of race and a pandemic dominating the headlines, perhaps this fall sees kids back to school and a third quarter economic report that's rosier than expected. Maybe there's a Supreme Court nomination fight or a significant Biden misstep or fumble. The bigger question is whether Americans, especially white Americans, are ready to move on. Will this time of racial reckoning endure beyond this summer? And will it have permanently impacted Trump's political standing? For now, however, Trump is an underdog for re-election. A quick shout out to our amazing team, Amber Hall, Patricia Jacob, Debbie Daughtry, Dina Syedamed, Jay Cowett, Katerina Barton, and Polly Arungu all helped make the show with an assist from birthday boy David Gable, our executive assistant. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Tanzina, Tanzina Vega is back with you on Monday. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.